This is Lab Medicine Rounds, a curated podcast for physicians, laboratory professionals, and students. I'm your host, Justin Kreuter, the Bowtie Bandit of Blood, a transfusion medicine pathologist at Mayo Clinic. Today, we're rounding with Dr. Shanik Gupta, Assistant Professor of Pathology here at Mayo Clinic on hereditary oncology and molecular testing for solid tumors. So thanks for joining us today, Dr. Gupta. Thanks, Justin. Thank you for having me. So, you know, this is a really interesting area, molecular testing for solid tumors. Maybe you could kind of get us started in understanding why is it important to perform molecular testing on solid tumors? Sure. So historically, I'd say most of the molecular testing for solid tumors has been relatively lower complexity and there have been single gene assays where you test for one single thing. To give you an example, looking for a fusion between two genes based on which you could make a very specific diagnosis, let's say for sarcoma, or looking for a targeted alteration in, let's say, lung cancer based on which we could give targeted treatment. And I think what we are seeing right now is a huge shift in which the list of things that we have to test for keeps growing. And part of that is because of... uh, increased profiling of really, really large sets of patient tumors, for instance, from the Cancer Genome Atlas studies, where they've sequenced hundreds and hundreds of tumor types. And as a result, what we are seeing is that we're getting requests for testing for a large number of targets, let's say for diagnostic use, for therapeutic use, to the point where a single gene assay may not be the best way to go. So we're we're moving into an era where it's really important to have comprehensive testing, not just for a single gene, for multiple genes. And in addition to that, we keep adding on other metrics, uh, things like tumor mutation burden or microsatellite instability. So we're trying to get to a stage where we have one perfect test for multiple cancers instead of having a really complex test menu. And as you can imagine, that's a huge challenge. Maybe you could hit it at home. I, you know, I, I remember taking boards and answering these questions about these single gene uh, mutations and such. And you know, for some of our listeners, they might be hearing you and not really understanding what's the significance. I mean, you know, are you somebody that's uh, creating work so you can sign out work, or <laughs> you know, what is the difference for the patient or the physician for doing this kind of testing? I can put it into perspective for you uh, from the lens of, let's say, a urologic pathologist which is what I do. And if we take a step back to how things used to be, so I was just reading a paper on kidney cancer from 1971. And at that time, we had three types of kidney tumors. And right now, if you look at the WHO classification, that list has ballooned to well over 20 entities, and it it keeps growing. And so, for instance, the same tumor type, let's say clear cell renal cell carcinoma is a good example. What was, let's say, historically diagnosed as clear cell renal cell carcinoma will today maybe be subclassified into multiple categories. And some of these we can recognize using traditional methods or surrogates, using morphology, looking at a slide, looking at what the tumor looks like some basic immunohistochemistry or protein markers, and the others we just can't tell based on 
histology and we have to do molecular testing. And the distinction becomes really important in, in, in the sense that some of these tumors can be very indolent, almost benign. So to give you an example, we have an entity called clear cell papillary renal cell carcinoma, which would have historically been, been called clear cell renal cell carcinoma. And these are almost a benign or low malignant potential tumors. And you can tell a patient, you'll have an excellent prognosis if you're diagnosed with this type of a tumor. So it's important to make those types of distinctions. And often we require molecular testing to make those distinctions. In other cases, you might have a tumor that looks like a clear cell renal cell carcinoma, but it could be related to tuberous sclerosis. So in that case, you could do molecular testing. You could ask family members to get tested. And then it has implications, not just for the patient, but for the whole family. So the utility keeps expanding and similarly for therapeutic targets and in the case you have metastatic disease. So if that kind of puts it into perspective. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. So, you know, there is a reason behind me memorizing those uh, gene mutations and answering correctly on the boards <laughs> and becoming certified. But as you're really helping us figure out now is, I guess to paraphrase you, it's kind of like it, it used to be one big box and by being able to really separate it and being more splitters, we can actually give a more accurate prognosis. And I, and I assume that there's also, like you said, some therapeutic implications as well to this. Yeah, so and, and um, to give you a, a, a great example, traditionally, one of the tumor types where we don't do a lot of ancillary testing, and we traditionally diagnose these just by looking at the morphology is prostate cancer. And as we've started sequencing prostate cancers, we found that a lot of these tumors have mutations that we were not aware of maybe five or 10 years ago. For instance, BRCA mutations or DNA mismatch repair mutations that you get in Lynch syndrome. And once you identify these mutations, it just opens up newer therapeutic targets for these patients, whether it's immunotherapy or PARP inhibitors. And when we look at the histology of these tumors, there really aren't any good surrogates to say that this tumor is going to have this alteration, or this is a subtle clue that tells me that this tumor has this particular alteration, and there's no way to identify these till we actually do the molecular testing. So now we are moving into an era where we often don't have morphologic or immunohistochemistry-based surrogates, which calls for parallel molecular testing. Interesting, interesting. So as we're getting really into this molecular world, could you kind of share with us maybe what are some recent examples in the last couple months or last year or two that have kind of blown this door open about hereditary oncology? So with hereditary oncology, I, I think one of the things that we are seeing is that if we follow guidelines-based testing, we still miss a significant portion of patients that actually have germline alterations. And also our understanding of germline alterations and cancer is expanding. So for instance, many recent studies have shown that if you screen a large cohort of patients, you identify germline alterations in a subset that wouldn't have been identified based on classic guideline-based screening. And even with guideline-based screening, the adoption across different hospitals, different settings is not very uniform. 
So to give you an example for kidney cancer, for instance, uh, the guidelines say that if somebody is diagnosed with a kidney cancer under the age of 46, at or under the age of 46, we should test these individuals to see if they have a germline predisposition. And so I think there's been variable utilization of those particular guidelines. And as we adopt those guidelines more uniformly, as we ramp up testing across sites, we're starting to identify more and more of these cases. And the other challenge that we're seeing in the hereditary oncology space is that it's very difficult to just test for one or two genes. So a panel testing approach is likely the best way to go forward. And what I mean by that is, let's say, for instance, for kidney cancer, it may be commonly associated with 20 or 30 odd genes. And so we, we can't follow an approach where we just test for five of the most common alterations. We have to use a broader approach to test these patients. For more laboratory education, including a listing of live conferences, webinars, and on-demand content, visit news.mayocliniclabs.com forward slash education. This is really interesting. So similar to a few episodes in the past, we were talking with uh, some of our cellular therapy colleagues, and they were also talking about an aspect of medicine where there's just this rapid innovation and progress being made. I think I'm hearing the same story from you, Dr. Gupta, is, you know, this is something where you've got this rapid rise in information. I always like to ask about challenges in the area, and it sounds to me like you're describing a challenge of going from what we're learning from the studies to how does this get translated into practice? Can you kind of elaborate or talk a little bit about that challenge on how do we get this, you know, rapid rise in molecular knowledge and testing, which, as you pointed out, matters for patient care, matters for prognostic information so that patients can make the best decisions for themselves. What's your perspective on this? So I, I look at it from two different angles. One is from the perspective of a practicing pathologist. And I think the biggest challenge in today's environment is just navigating the test menu and the sense that we want to have appropriate test utilization. So for instance, there are many cases where you can get an answer just using morphology and immunohistochemistry-based surrogates, and you can have a very cost-effective way to get to an answer. In other cases, let's say somebody presents with a very poorly differentiated tumor and your morphologic or immunohistochemistry-based assessment has its limitations. And there you want a more complex test. And I think as we go ahead, the biggest challenge for the practicing pathologist is in terms of navigating a test menu. So right now, if you look at, let's say our test menu here at the Mayo Clinic, we have literally antibodies for hundreds of proteins. We have a massive array of fish tests. We're in the process of developing cell-free DNA assays, assays for RNA, assays for DNA that ranges from anything from a single gene to 500 plus genes. And the biggest question for the practicing pathologist is, this is what I'm suspecting, what's the best test to order? 
And from our perspective, and by that I mean from the perspective of somebody that's developing tests, I think what we are learning is that we just can't have a very limited test menu. We have to have a large number of options to cater to both physicians that practice within the clinic as well as physicians outside of the clinic who are sending in specimens for testing and to have a comprehensive test menu. And the guidelines keep evolving. So for instance, I'm with one of my colleagues, Dr. Wei Shen, I'm uh, leading our hereditary oncology test development efforts. And this has been in the works for multiple years. It's a very complex test that we are building that tests for 88 genes. And if you look, look at the guidelines from when we started developing the test, they might have evolved at the time when we actually go live with the test. So it's our challenging is to stay ahead of the evolving guidelines. For instance, every year, for instance, the ASCO meeting or other national and international meetings, we get new data, new literature, new genes that become relevant. And so we might have designed a panel of 88 genes one and a half years ago, and when we go live, new papers come out that say these genes may also be relevant for this particular cancer type, and it might not be included in our panel. So it's a very dynamic process where we have to be able to keep modifying our tests uh, on a periodic basis. To give you an example, we have a panel that we call the sarcoma panel, and this panel tests for fusions that are common in sarcomas, and it has over 100 genes. Since we've gone live with this test, we've gotten additional requests for multiple other genes to be included. And so we recently came up with a plan to update the number of genes on that panel. And we're quickly learning that we need even more genes. So it's, it's always a moving target, and that's the biggest challenge from our perspective. Wow, you're employed by a very established uh, institution, Dr. Gupta, but you're behaving like a lean startup, I think. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm curious, one of the themes that we like to explore on this podcast are the relationships between laboratory medicine pathology and the clinical practice. And, you know, you bring a very nuanced perspective to things. And I, th I really like your perspective on navigating the test menu. And I think a lot of our clinician colleagues, that, that's also the same challenge. Could you elaborate a little bit on uh, how you interact with your clinical colleagues on how to keep people up to date or how to explore what's the right thing to bring on to that test menu? I think one of the things I had really underestimated was the complexity of navigating these relationships. So for instance, as I mentioned earlier, I'm a urologic pathologist and that's my focus. And once I go outside of that comfort zone, it becomes much more challenging. So, so to give you an example, when we are developing this hereditary oncology test, which should cover germline testing for multiple cancer types, there are multiple groups of people that we have to interact with. So across disciplines, whether it's in the cancer center or in oncology, whether it's in Mayo Clinic Rochester or Mayo Clinic Florida, across sites, and to keep up with the latest advances in multiple cancer types across centers can be very challenging. But it's, it's also been a very rewarding process. And to give you an example, uh, one of the tests that we're evaluating right now is something called a score for 
homologous recombination deficiency. So for instance, patients that have, let's say mutations and DNA damage response genes may be eligible for certain therapies. And we can predict this based on an HRD score. And to develop that, I have to reach out to the appropriate stakeholders, which may be somebody that's treating a patient with pancreatic cancer or ovarian cancer, and to really step into their shoes and understand what sorts of situations would such a test be most helpful for? What types of specimens do we need to test? Do we need to test cytology? Do we need to test formalin fixed tissue? Uh, what are the specimen types? How many specimens will we get in a year? What do we need in addition to just a score? Do we need to understand which gene is contributing to this elevated score, for instance? So there's a lot of interaction across disciplines. And I, I think at the end of the day, if you're successful, it's primarily because we've been able to leverage those relationships. What's your secret to leveraging those relationships? <laughs> I don't have any formula, but it's, it's just staying engaged and trying to reach out to every appropriate stakeholder and making sure that everybody is, uh, we give an appropriate weight to everybody's opinion and try to incorporate it when we develop a test. I think one of the things I've learned is that you have to be comfortable with not being perfect. And I know that whatever test we develop is likely not going to be perfect either today or let's say five years in, in the future. So a test that may be really good today may be obsolete five years in the future, and we should have a plan in place to kind of look at the next step. So even while we are developing, let's say, tests for this year, we are always looking ahead to what may be needed in the future, what may be needed two years down the road. And we start those discussions early. We have multidisciplinary meetings to see if this is something that we should invest in today so that we have something in place two, even three years down the road. This lesson of, you know, it's okay to not be perfect, especially coming from you, somebody who's very successful leading a multi-group, going through this multi-generational development of lab testing. I saved my most dangerous question for last. <laughs> <laughs> so oh, <no. laughs> uh, given the, the, this rapid advancement in this area, I'm curious, Dr. Gupta, for you to pull out your crystal ball. What does the future of molecular tumor testing look like? do you think? A lot of it is going to lie around appropriate test utilization, like I touched on earlier. I don't think the solution is to have very complex tests applied universally. I think there are many situations where it's not warranted. And then in certain specific situations, it is warranted. And I think navigating that process so we get the right test that's cost effective and give, provides the appropriate amount of information. And I think that's always a moving target. What's appropriate today may not be appropriate three or four years down the road. So I, I think that's a very important area. The other direction I think that we are moving towards as a field is in comprehensive molecular profiling in the sense that I don't think it makes a lot of sense to keep serially testing for one target after another. We are practicing in an era where we need one single test that can provide us a lot of information. And I think we made huge strides recently. We just launched our large cancer panel and it actually tests for over 500 genes. 
And this can be applied across cancer types and it provides a lot of other useful metrics which can provide therapeutic targets for advanced disease. And so I think having those types of tests on our menu is going to be really important. Fantastic. We've been rounding with Dr. Gupta, who's been giving us really a a nuanced and uh, really a principled perspective on hereditary oncology and molecular testing for solid tumors. Thank you, Dr. Gupta, for taking the time to talk about this with us today. Thank you, Justin. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. To all our listeners, thank you for joining us today. We invite you to share your thoughts and suggestions via email. Please direct any suggestions to mcleducation at mayo.edu. If you've enjoyed Lab Medicine Rounds podcast, please follow or subscribe. Until our next rounds together, we encourage you to continue to connect lab medicine and the clinical practice through insightful conversations. Mm-hmm.